And one important thing besides uh, when you approach the patient with neurologic disorders, remember, you have to differentiate uh, disorders that present with uh, focal findings versus symmetric bilateral findings. So we have an idea of this is a toxic metabolic problem or simply a focal lesion affecting areas. Okay, another thing, uh, when you analyze the findings, the physical exam findings, for example, or the complaints of the patient, is if they have symptoms that are related to damage of the upper motor neuron or lower motor neuron. Okay, when you look at the anatomy of the nervous system, the motor branch, okay, we have a neuron that arises in the cortex of the brain, primary motor cortex or any other motor uh, part, association, etc. Okay, this neuron is gonna travel down okay, in the white matter, it's gonna pass uh, in a structure that we call the internal capsule, the axon, no? that is between the thalamus and the basal ganglia. There are some connections between the basal ganglia and this axon. And then the axon goes down to the brainstem, crosses at the level of the medulla, and continues down the spinal cord in the anterior part of the spinal cord. And then it makes a synapsis in the anterior horn of the spinal cord with another neuron that we call the lower motor neuron. That is the one that sends the axon in the peripheral nerve okay, to make a synapsis with the muscle. Okay, this second neuron, the lower motor neuron, is the one that is normally trying to stimulate the muscle to contract. Now, the upper motor neuron is all the time inhibiting that lower motor neuron. Okay, so remember that concept, upper motor neuron has an inhibitory, okay, so it's a break, so the lower motor neuron doesn't fire. Now, how much is the break? It depends on the action of the neurons that connect during the pathway, all of these neurons from the basal ganglia that determine what is the degree of that inhibition. So different muscles will have different tone, depending on the position of the body, depending on different situations. Now, understanding that, uh, we can predict what would happen if there is a damage to the upper motor neuron. Okay, we are gonna lose totally the inhibition of this lower motor neuron, so the excitation, the lower motor neuron will be free to make the muscle contract. So these patients that have a damage to the upper motor neuron will present with spasticity. Okay, reflexes are gonna be exaggerated, there is gonna be spasticity. We can find, for example, Babinski reflex when there is a damage to the upper motor neuron. Now, if the damage is to the lower motor neuron, now the muscle cannot contract. So people are gonna have flaccidity, lower tone, okay, the reflexes are gonna be absent or very weak reflexes. And muscle, the muscle loses this control from the nervous system, so we may see fasciculations. Different fascicles are contracting, other, others are not, so we may see fasciculations, like twitches, for example, in the tongue, in the muscles. Okay, so that is a very important concept. Okay, notice that the lesions to the upper motor neuron can occur at different levels, for example, in the same cortex, 
the gray matter, or any way along the pathway of this axon, the, for example, internal capsule, or in the brain stem, or in the anterior part of the spinal cord. Okay, any spinal cord lesion, for example. And for example, spinal cord lesions uh, are gonna depend, we are gonna see examples of this, okay, of if the lesion is, uh, it affects the entire spinal cord, we're gonna lose everything from that level and below, or below that level. Sometimes there are lesions that affect only the anterior part, let's say someone has a hematoma, an abscess, or a fracture in a vertebral body that affects only a little piece of the spinal cord, can be anterior, posterior, lateral. Okay, so the symptoms or the findings are gonna depend on that. Uh, when we have an acute spinal cord lesion, typically there is edema. Even if it's a tiny lesion affecting only one part, at the beginning there is edema, so all the spinal cord, and even two segments above and below are gonna be affected by the edema. So we have to wait for the edema to be reabsorbed to actually know what is the degree of damage. Okay, of course we can do an MRI and have a a better idea, no? but if we don't have it, we have to wait for the edema to be reabsorbed. Okay, when there is an acute lesion, there is gonna be flaccid paralysis, absence of reflexes, okay, below that level. That is what we know as spinal shock. Okay, we have to wait for the edema to be uh, reabsorbed. That may, may happen days or weeks after, depending on the degree of the damage. And then we are going to start seeing the signs of the upper motor neuron lesions, spasticity, hypertonia, hyperreflexia, Babinski. But at the beginning it's difficult because there is edema, it's like a shock for the body, there is, so it could present as a lower motor neuron, okay, when actually what is damaged is the upper motor neuron. But during the spinal shock, it's going to present with flaccidity, no reflex. Okay, there is a spastic paralysis, okay, increased muscle tone uh, that can be described as a clasp knife, knife rigidity. Okay, when you try to, for example, uh, extend the arm, it's gonna be very resistant, and then the resistance is gonna decrease. But at the beginning, it's very difficult to extend the, uh, the, the elbow, for example. Lower motor neuron is different, flaccid paralysis, poor muscle tone. We are gonna see uh, examples of diseases, okay, in which we can see either upper motor neuron uh, findings or lower motor neuron, or a combination of them. Okay, here we have a diagrams for you to remember the basic anatomy of this. Okay, it's important to remember what the internal capsule is, notice how we have there, okay, the actions from the different parts of the motor cortex. That is how these actions travel in the anterior part of the midbrain and pons. And how when they get to the medulla, okay, most of them are gonna cross to the other side of the body. Okay, a little bit like 10% of the actions are gonna continue in the same side, ipsilaterally. Okay, forming all of these motor uh, tracts that will then make a synapsis with the lower motor neuron there. And also remember the distribution okay, in the motor and somatosensory cortex. 
of different uh, parts of the body. You can notice that in the lateral part of the motor and the sensory cortex, okay, we have uh, the neurons that will provide innervation, innervation to the tongue, to the face, to the hand. Okay, if you compare the amount of brain or cortex neurons that are dedicated to the face, to the tongue, to the hand, with that, uh, the area that is dedicated to the trunk and legs, okay, you're going to see that we have to dedicate a lot of uh, neurons okay, to control okay, all of the motor and sensory input from and to the hand, face, tongue, okay, because this requires a lot more of uh, very fine movements and there is a lot of more sensation in the tongue, the lips, the hands, fingertips. Okay, we do more things that need a higher amount of neurons controlling those movements and also those sensations. This is going to be very important for when we study strokes later, okay, because these areas are uh, receive blood supply from different arteries. Understanding strokes Okay, it has a lot to do with anatomy and understanding very well how these things are distributed. And here we have a diagram that uh, represents the upper motor neuron from the cortex okay, to the anterior horn of the spinal cord. Okay, and the lower motor neuron is the one that uh, is transiting, okay, is, uh, the axons are carried in this spinal nerve, also in the cranial nerves. Okay, so any lesion to the nerve itself, demyelination, or like Guillain-Barré, for example, or any section or compression of a nerve will manifest with lower motor neuron findings, weakness, flaccidity, fasciculations. But if the lesion is in the spinal cord or brain, that will present with spasticity, okay, with hypertonia. Is that pyramidal? Is that what? That's that is the pyramidal, right? Yes. The extra pyramidal is the one that exerts the fine control the, of the, for example, the strength, okay, the speed at, at which you start the movements prevents tremors of the basal ganglia, okay, that will send connections okay, to regulate all these movements. Now, besides damage to the upper lower motor neuron, okay, we may have diseases that are characterized by uh, injury or a def defect, impairment of the neuromuscular junction. Okay, for that, it's a good idea to also review the basic structure and function okay, of the neuromuscular junction. Remember that synapsis okay, is composed by a presynaptic a bottom, okay, imagine, for example, the lower motor neuron, the end of the axon, okay, that uh, when we need to stimulate the muscle, okay, a signal, the action potential is going to reach that area, it's going to be hyperpolarization, calcium ions, okay, will need to enter inside the axon, the axon end, that will produce the fusion of the vesicles that contain neurotransmitters, Okay, with the cell membrane, neurotransmitters, acetylcholine, for example, is going to be released in the synaptic cleft, 
Acetylcholine is going to bind to receptors in the muscle. Okay, and those uh, when those receptors are occupied by acetylcholine, that is going to produce the depolarization of the muscle. Okay, it's a process that has has to work properly. Okay, so we may have different defects in the transmission of these impulses from the nerve to the muscle. And for example, we have the Lambert-Eaton syndrome, okay, also known as Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome. Okay, that uh, will, uh, in this case, we are going to have antibodies to the calcium channels. So this is affecting the presynaptic bottom, okay, the uh, the axonal end of the lower motor neuron. If we have antibodies to these calcium channels, calcium is not going to be able to enter when the action potential reaches the end of the lower motor neuron. Okay, so there is not, people are not going to have the release of neurotransmitters. Okay, what we can do, for example, is to know if the person has this condition, there are different tests. And for example, we can do repetitive nerve stimulation. Okay, that very uh, increasing the amount of nerve stimulation will facilitate the calcium accumulation, and they are going to start releasing acetylcholine. Okay, we don't have the means of doing a repetitive nerve stimulation. Simply, uh, we can try with exercise. Okay, exercise is going to improve the muscle weakness that these people have. Lambert-Eaton syndrome is one of the paraneoplastic syndromes that appear in people with small cell lung cancer or other types of malignancies. Okay, those cancer cells produce these antibodies that block the calcium channels. Now, something similar may occur, for example, people taking aminoglycosides. Okay, they have a syndrome that is very similar to, to Lambert-Eaton. Okay, that doesn't happen in everyone who takes aminoglycosides, but it's important to know that this may happen. Then, uh, for example, toxins, Clostridium botulinum, and that is the reason why Botox works okay, uh, as a treatment, aesthetic treatment for wrinkles, etc. Uh, this toxin okay, uh, will, uh, the effect it will have, it will destroy or will cleave the proteins that are necessary okay, for the neurotransmitters to be released. Okay, when calcium enters in the synaptic bottom, okay, that calcium will allow these vesicles that contain acetylcholine to duck in the membrane, to fuse with the membrane, but that, that needs some proteins okay, to permit that ducking there. And if we break down those proteins by using toxins, okay, that is going to prevent the release of the neurotransmitters. Okay, that, that, that may happen when we use bottles therapeutically for muscle spasms or aesthetic uh, purposes, but that may happen also when someone has botulism, okay, which is a food poisoning that is a extremely severe, which people may develop generalized muscle weakness, including the respiratory muscles, and that's why this is so dangerous. Now, then also we have myasthenia gravis. Okay, notice the difference between Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome and myasthenia gravis. Okay, in Lambert-Eaton, we have antibodies against the calcium channels in the presynaptic membrane. Here we have antibodies against the acetylcholine receptor that is in the postsynaptic membrane. It's in the muscle. 
okay, that will inhibit the receptor and will physically destroy the receptors as well. Okay, so now these people release acetylcholine, but they don't have enough receptors. That's why they have muscle weakness. Okay, acetylcholine typically, when it's released, if it doesn't find any place to bind, or after it binds, it is going to be destroyed by the enzyme acetylcholinesterase. Okay, so the treatment for these people is going to be simply give acetylcholine, uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, so we maintain the acetylcholine for a longer time in the synapses. Okay, in this case, uh, if we do repetitive nerve stimulation or simply exercising, will make worse the condition, okay, because exercising or stimulating the nerves doesn't increase the number of receptors as the repetitive nerve stimulation, for example, increases the amount of calcium that is available. Okay, that is the, the, the difference. Simply one gets worse with exercise, the other gets better. Because they present clinically more or less in the same way, proximal muscle weakness. There you have the diagram that shows, so you want to remember the basic anatomy of this. And you have the place that are affected by Lambert-Eaton, aminoglycosides, botulism, and myasthenia gravis. Now here we have a condition that is an example of a disease in which both the upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron may be affected. Okay, typically we associate upper motor neuron uh, manifestations with strokes or any spinal cord lesion and lower motor neuron uh, disorders with peripheral neuropathies, uh, demyelinating conditions that affect the nerves. But here we have one example okay, in which both may be affected. ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig disease. Okay. Uh, another name for this condition is uh, motor neuron disease. There are different names that we can use for this condition. Okay, we have affected both the upper, the motor uh, neuron, neurons, so there are lesions at every level. These lesions typically are progressive, the manifestations they, there are no remissions and exacerbations like in other neurodegenerative conditions. This progresses in a linear way, getting worse and worse and worse. Okay, the etiology is related to mutations or impairment in an enzyme that is called superoxide dismutase. This enzyme is very important to remove free radicals. Okay, so any, any time the neurons are working excessively, they are going to produce several uh, uh, chemicals as a result of the metabolism of the neurotransmitters. Okay, and we are supposed to clean all this area. Okay, and one of the most important things is this enzyme that is like an antioxidant enzyme that we have naturally. Okay, so we have excessive oxidation, oxidative damage. Okay, this will trigger a cascade of inflammatory events excessive concentration of glutamate that can be removed from the area. Okay, this excessive glutamate phenomenon is something that is called excitotoxicity. Okay, glutamate is supposed to uh, be broken down immediately. 
Okay, and this uh, cascade of events will lead to the formation of some proteins that are misfolded. Okay, these misfolded proteins start aggregating and they act like a prion. If you remember mad cow disease, okay, or prion disease, when you have a protein that is misfolded and acts like a prion, that means that this protein is gonna produce like a contagion, is gonna produce or induce that other normal proteins also misfold, okay? And that will produce this, the accumulation of these proteins leading to cellular injury, apoptosis of the neurons in this case. Okay, this condition typically has an autosomal dominant inheritance, okay, in most cases. Um, but we may not find a, a family history Okay, because someone has a neurodegenerative disease so bad, like this uh, ALS, it is very unlikely that they have kids unless they had the kids before that disease started manifesting. Okay, that's why even though it has an autosomal dominant inheritance, that is only if they have kids. Notice that 90 to 95% of the cases are sporadic. So it's the first mutation in the family. Now, the other 5 to 10% maybe is familial, but just we have to remind that this person had kids a lot before the disease started manifesting. Okay, this is present in 5.2 okay, people per 100,000. Okay, typically starts after the age of 40 and is more uh, common in Caucasians. And other risk factor that has been associated with this is cigarette smoking. There are no other risk factors that have been found. Okay, here we have what we find in the, in the neurons, these uh, inclusions there, okay, that um, when we study these uh, histopathological findings, people start finding uh, interesting associations. Okay, the lesions are described as degeneration and gliosis of the axons. That is like scarring, affecting the anterior lateral columns of the spinal cord. Also, low, a loss of motor neurons in the spinal cord, lower motor neuron, and also affects the pyramidal cells, upper motor neurons. Okay, and these inclusions, these uh, accumulations of the misfolded proteins, okay, are called bunina bodies, okay, eosinophilic, so pinkish inclusions in the affected neurons. Okay, and also they, they have found inclusions that are uh, called TDP43. This has something to do with the RNA uh, mutations that they have. And these are inclusions that are similar to those that we find in frontotemporal dementia that we are gonna study later. Okay, and look very similar to the Lewy bodies. Okay, we are gonna see the importance of this and maybe find an association between these conditions, okay? Because we have exactly the same histopathologic finding, but instead of being affecting the frontotemporal lobes, it's affecting the motor cortex and the spinal cord. That's why one condition, maybe they, are ex they have exactly the same mechanism, but depending on what area of the nervous system is affected, the clinical manifestations are gonna be different, okay? Because this is affecting the motor cortex and the spinal cord. That's why it doesn't affect the personality 
and doesn't give us a dimension. Okay, like when this condition affects temporal lobe and the frontal lobe. Is there a treatment to slow down? To slow it down? Not yet. Okay, and here we have the role of this uh, protein in ALS. Notice that the most important thing is that the accumulation of this okay, damages the mitochondria. Okay, the abnormal aggregates of this damages the mitochondria. So the neurons okay, will have a problem with what we call autophagy and mitophagy. Mitophagy simply is the destruction of mitochondria that are damaged. And autophagy, the, the, the self-destruction of cells that are damaged. Okay, so these uh, people are going to have also compromised different uh, events that depend on the proper working of, of the mitochondria. And at the end, the neurons are going to die. Okay, so this is the answer to your question. Okay, there should, if several diseases share the same mechanism, there should be a medication that could help in ALS, but also frontotemporal dementia. Similar findings are associated with Huntington disease, with Parkinson's disease, and with Alzheimer's disease. Okay, we have similar, what, the difference in the clinical manifestations is what area of the brain is affected. Okay, in ALS, motor cortex and spinal cord. Frontotemporal dementia, frontal lobe and temporal lobe. In Huntington disease, we have some of the basal ganglia, cutaneous striatum. In Parkinson disease, we, we have the substantia nigra. And in Alzheimer's disease, we have this more localized to the hippocampus. Okay, so, but the mechanism is practically the same. So someone has to find that mysterious treatment that will serve for all of these, probably, at least to delay okay, the progression of this. But notice how oxidation impairs mitochondrial activity, okay, excessive, uh, this is what we call excitotoxicity, excessive glutamate, okay, is uh, at the basis of the pathogenesis. And one thing that, uh, that may be at the center of many of these conditions is uh, our body, when we have a, I'm not gonna say excessive, the normal activity of the neurons will produce lots of glutamate and glutamate is gonna produce some waste products that have to be cleaned up by these superoxidis mutates, by these mechanisms. But the brain needs a time for uh, janitor services and that is when we are sleeping, okay, when we sleep, there are certain changes in the brain, okay, that will allow the, uh, all of these mechanisms to work and remove all of the wastes. That's why we require at least seven hours of sleep. And this is probably why people, or there is a great association between lack of sleep and Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative disorders. So there are things in common there. Okay, hyperglycemia. There's a great association between metabolic syndrome, diabetes mellitus, smoking, with all of these conditions. Okay, and there we have a representation. This uh, brain here on the left, 
Okay, this is a person. Notice that they too, they both are centenarian brains. So people who lived a hundred years. Okay, this one is a non-demented person. Okay, there is a normal hippocampus. And this is a centenarian brain. Okay, shrunken hippocampus. Okay, they have a, a what we call limbic predominant age-related TDP43 encephalopathy. Okay, there is a, people having per memory and thinking, culminating in dementia, memory loss. Typically occurs very slowly compared to, to Alzheimer's disease. These are people with a hundred year old, year old. Okay, and there is a buildup of this misfolded protein in the amygdala and hippocampus. Okay, this is a condition that may look similar to Alzheimer's, but has a more delayed onset after 75 years old. The memory loss is very slow. And maybe that's what we call, oh, it's normal. They have memory losses. They are old. Maybe it's not normal. Now, in ALS, we have coexisting upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron findings. Okay, there are different types okay, of ALS. Okay, we have most patients, 70% of the patients will have what we call limb onset ALS. Okay, and this is subdivided into, okay, there is one type that is called flail arm and the other is flail leg, depending on where the weakness starts. For example, in flail arm ALS, Okay, the, the weakness, the symptoms start in the proximal muscles in the, on the upper lip, and the symptoms move distally. Okay, while the flail leg, ALS, the symptoms start in the lower limbs, but they start distally and they move proximally. Okay, these two types, okay, in one moment they may affect the respiratory muscles, some people may die of respiratory failure. But the one that starts in the legs and starts distally will have a slower progression, okay? Will take more time, okay, to affect, for example, all the, the, the intercostal muscles, the diaphragm. So we could say that the flail arm has a worse prognosis than the flail leg syndrome. And then we have a small percentage of the patients, 25%, that have a ball bar onset. Okay, this starts with the involvement of the cranial nerves. So they will have speech difficulties, dysarthria. They will have dysphagia. And this is going to affect the diaphragm very early. So that is the one that has the worst onset of a prognosis of the three forms. And the most common pattern, remember, 70% of the patients have the limb onset. So typically the patients have a unilateral limb onset. Let's say they start in the right arm from proximal to distal. Then they have the contralateral limb, the left arm. Then they have, if they start in the right arm, then they have the right leg, then the left leg, okay? Until at the end, the bulbar muscles are affected and that's when the diaphragm and the centers of respiration may be affected. 
Okay, the progression is linear. There are no remissions or exacerbations. That is very important to remember because we are going to study other diseases that may have, may be confusing. Okay, uh, when we have a patient with these weird findings, but it's more characterized by remissions and exacerbations. So complications we have already mentioned the progression of the disease. They are not hard to predict. Respiratory failure dysphagia, dysarthria. There is a condition that is uh, difficult to understand why it happens, but it's very characteristic of ALS, and that is called pseudo-bulbar affect, which are episodes of uncontrollable laughter or crying, okay? That may affect 50% of the patients. That is more classically found when the brain stem is affected in the bulbar form. They will have pain, okay? they will have uh, findings associated with the spasticity, pain associated and with the decreased mobility, with the being bedridden probably, or lack of mobility. Okay? And notice that the survival, median survival is three to five years. Okay? Only 30% will be alive after five years of the diagnosis and just between 10 to 20% after 10 years. Okay, will depend on if they have any complications. Notice that if they have a, if they are overweight, mild obesity at the diagnosis, they have a better prognosis, as well as if they are younger at the onset. And there you have many resources. There are many questions, and there are more in the other presentation. Here we are going to uh, cover okay, other common complaints of people with neurologic disorders, okay, like ataxia. Okay, and we are going to see some diseases okay, that <coughs> will manifest with different types of neurologic uh, findings, trying to understand how we make the differential diagnosis between them. Okay, as you have seen, probably uh, this presentation has more than 110 slides, but the ones that are content for lecture are just like a third of those. Okay, there are many resources at the end, questions, etc. Okay, so don't get scared for, because of the number of slides. So we're going to start uh, with. Uh, this part of the cerebellum, ataxia, okay, the cerebellum is an organ that is not very well studied. Okay, if you want to enter into research and you start studying the cerebellum, you're going to discover many things that nobody knows. Okay, we simply think of the cerebellum as something that is in the backyard, like to, I don't know, to put some stuff there. 
and simply say, oh, balance coordination. But the cerebellum has extremely important functions in learning. It's not only just the coordination of the muscles. And people that have a cerebellar damage typically present with ataxia, okay, among other symptoms, depending on what is the disease. Okay, ataxia is a sign, it's not a disease, of course. Okay, we are going to see lack of movement coordination. Okay, we all probably have had some degree of ataxia if we have drank too much alcohol. So we know what that is. Okay. We're going to try to understand what part of the cerebellum may be affected and what implications it has. Okay, we may have gait abnormalities that may affect also the, uh, every muscle in the body, not only the, the legs and the, and the hands. For example, changes in speech because ataxia of the muscles that we use for speaking. Okay, ataxia may affect even the diaphragm. Okay, in very severe cases. We may have also nystagmus, okay, lack of coordination between the muscles that typically should uh, control the eyes that both move in the same direction. Okay, and we're gonna see how the cerebellum may be affected. But also, it's important to understand that the cerebellum can work properly if it's not receiving the proper information. So if the proprioception is not proper, Okay, the cerebellum doesn't know what to do. Or if there, if there is a mismatch, for example, between the information that the brain and the cerebellum are receiving from proprioceptors and visual information and the vestibular system, that is going to produce not only problems in the coordination, also it's going to produce symptoms like vertigo. And that's what happens when we are in any kind of situation Okay, in which we are receiving different information from the visual fields and the proprioceptors. For example, if you have at any time played with any virtual reality system, okay, we are receiving some visual information about movement, but the proprioceptors don't tell the brain that we are moving. So what's going on here? And we may feel vertical dizziness. Okay, and it will be very hard to coordinate if you want to walk when you are in a virtual reality game, and you want to walk across the room, it's going to be weird, okay, the movements that we are doing. So there are different disorders, inherited, sporadic disorders, okay, that may produce ataxia. We are going to see examples, okay, or some acquired disorders can be structural diseases, demyelinating diseases, or toxicity, inflammatory, also neoplastic diseases. Okay, autoimmune conditions. And ataxia, when we study the patient that has ataxia, okay, we have to find the cause. Notice that it can be classified as cerebellar, okay, sensory, or vestibular, depending on what is the pathophysiological basis. Where is the problem starting? Uh, for example, you do the Romberg test when you're doing the physical examination. And that test you do to differentiate if the patient has a cerebellar or a proprioceptive ataxia. Okay, typically the patient that has a problem in the cerebellum is not going to be able to stand still with the feet together. Okay, someone stands still, put the feet together, 
and they are able to be like this, they, their cerebellum is perfectly fine. Okay, now, if they close the eyes and they fall, then we may suspect that there is a problem with the proprioceptors. Because to stand in one position, we need information from the vestibular system, from the eyes, and from the proprioceptors to control the posture. If we close the eyes, we are losing the visual information. And if we don't have the proprioceptive information, we are going to fall because the, the body doesn't know the position in space. Okay, But just standing still with the feet together is a sign that says the cerebellum is fine. Okay, Now, they may have a positive rumble, and that means proprioceptive dysfunction. And here we have some uh, etiologic factors. We are going to briefly describe what is Friedrich ataxia, ataxia telangiectasia. Okay, and there are some acquired disorders that may affect cerebellum, brain, spinal cord, peripheral nerves. Can be trauma, tumors, strokes, demyelinating conditions like multiple sclerosis, inflammation, different toxins, medications, alcohol, and for example, radiation, Therapy, vitamin or therapy or not, exposure to radiation, vitamin B12 deficiency, hypothyroidism, celiac disease may manifest with ataxia. Okay, celiac disease has different clinical presentations. Wilson disease, which is accumulation of copper in different parts of the body and the brain, nervous system, and ulnar chiari malformation, which there is a herniation of the tonsils of the cerebellum. Okay, they may be compressed as a result of this malformation at the level of the foramen magnum and upper cervical spine. Now, there we have the three types, uh, but the two types. And a type that is a combination, we are not including here the vestibular problems. Okay, when we are studying ataxia, later on we are going to be talking about imbalance Okay, and conditions as a result of vestibular problems. When we analyze the patient, the ataxia, you do a rumbar, for example, can be classified as sensory, also known as spinal or cerebellar. Okay. The sensory is the one that is uh, characterized by a positive rumbar, okay, interference of the proprioception. Okay, the cerebellar is when there are damages to the cerebellum itself. We are going to see that this is subdivided in, depending on what area of the cerebellum is affected, it's going to present differently. And that is a type that is a combination, okay, spinocerebellar ataxia. Okay, depending on the location of the cerebellar damage, okay, if the cerebellum is affected in the lateral parts or in the center, the findings are going to be different. Okay, here we have, for example, when the lateral cerebellum is affected, patients are going to have ipsilateral symptoms. Okay, the, 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 the fibers from the cerebellum do not cross. The findings are going to be in the same side of the lesion. Okay, if there is a diffuse cerebellar damage, of course, the findings are going to be bilateral. Now, damage to the cerebellar hemispheres is going to produce limb ataxia. But the damage to the vermis is going to produce more a truncal and a gate ataxia. 
is in the center, so it goes like directly to the legs. Get ataxia. This is what is damaged first when we drink alcohol. Okay? That's why people who are drunk typically have a gait ataxia more than a limb ataxia. Okay? They are uh, they can walk, but they can drive. Okay? Because it's easier to drive upper limbs rather than walk. Okay? And this looks uh, a bit complicated, but I made this diagram here for this table. This is the only thing that I want you to remember for purposes of exams. What happens when there is a damage to the midline? This is the vermis, or to the cerebellar hemispheres, the lateral sides. Okay? And for this is, at least I try to uh, imagine a, a body and say the midline goes directly to the legs, and the arms are in the lateral sides. That's what I, I have in my mental imaging. So midline cerebellar structures, vermis, gait difficulties, they fall with the feet together, so they can't even start doing the rumble. If they put the feet together, they are going to fall. That doesn't matter if the eyes are closed or open. Okay? They have severe troncal ataxia, inability to sit. Okay? If they, they, if they have to be supported by the arms to be sitting. Okay, they have dysmetria that is more evident in the lower limbs. For example, the heel to shin test is gonna be positive, it's impossible for them to do it. They will have horizontal gaze nystagmus, vertigo, nausea, and vomiting. Nystagmus. Now the hemispheres, remember more to the arms, they are gonna have something called dysdiadocopinesis or kinesis, in coordination with the rapid, uh, uh, rapid alternating movements. It's going to manifest more in the arms. Finger-to-nose test, that's going to be positive. Dysmetria in the upper limbs, upper limb ataxia. Okay, they are going to have intention tremor. Difference with the resting tremor of Parkinson's disease. You don't appreciate the tremor when they are at rest, when they try to reach for something they have the tremor, and they have scanning speech, speech. So it affects the arms and the speech muscles, the tongue, for example. And they don't have too much nystagmus. It's less evident than in the lateral or hemispheres ataxia. I think that in this case is more clear to separate vermis from cerebellar hemispheres. Bilateral if it's diffuse, okay? If the right cerebellum is affected, for example, the, the, the manifestations are gonna be seen in the right side of the body. The left hemisphere, the less left hemisphere, left side of the body. It's, they are ipsilateral, okay? Let's finish this and then we take a, a break. We don't break the, the topic. These are a couple of inherited causes of ataxia which are not difficult to remember, the name helps a lot. Ataxia telangiectasia, what they have? Ataxia antelangiectasia, okay? And the pathogenesis is simply a mutation in the ataxia telangiectasia gene. So it's called ataxia, ataxia telangiectasia mutation, ATM. So what they have? What is that? Ataxia, neurologic deficits, and they have many telangiectasias, 
But also, something that is not mentioned there, they have immunodeficiency. Okay, it's one of the diseases that produces congenital or inherited or primary immunodeficiency. So besides the ataxia and the telangiectasia, they have recurrent respiratory tract infections and other types of opportunistic infections. Okay, and they are at risk of developing a lymphoma, B-cell lymphoma. Now, Friedrich ataxia, the name doesn't tell us anything, but they don't have telangiectation. And this is the most frequent inherited ataxia. is autosomal recessive, typically starts before the age of 20. Okay, they start with gait ataxia. It's a very sad condition. They have sensory loss, proprioception, sensory loss. They have weakness, atrophy, spasticity. Okay, they may have Babinski as well. And the physical characteristic they have is foot deformities. They have uh, something called pescavus, and they have scoliosis, and they have risk of blindness, deafness, and also diabetes. Of course, they end up in a wheelchair, and they don't live too long. Okay, the mutation here is different. It's not a mutation uh, in a gene exactly, simply many repeats of a trinucleotide. Okay, guanine, adenine, adenine, GAA repeats on a gene that is called frataxin, leading to degeneration of neurons, ganglion cell degeneration, okay, damage of the axons, okay, and this impairs all of the sensory input to the cerebellum. So the cerebellum is like blind, okay, and that's why they have this ataxia. Okay, let's have a break, okay, uh, 10 minutes please only, you don't have too much time. That is, that is for 10. That's for 10.